0: I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, starting to read in verse 17. Uh, At the beginning of this year, I I announced I was going to do every third Sunday evening a a, um, Lord's Supper sermon, Uh, and I, I had 14 different... The themes to cover about the Lord's Supper on paper, none of them were overly, overly uh, overlapping. Um, I think this will be the sixth one, Uh, so we haven't done one every month. Um, But as I was looking at those 14 themes this past week, it struck me that even though they they all can stand on their own, when you put them into a single year, there's a lot of overlap. And so uh, this is going to be our last... Lord's Supper sermon for this year, and my thought is I'll, I'll cut back to maybe twice a year doing a Lord's Supper sermon when we partake in the evenings, and that way, uh, if there is overlap, we won't notice it quite as much. So uh, tonight we, we do this, and then we'll be finishing up the Ten Commandments before Christmas, and just to kind of give you a vision for where we're going after that. Maybe I said this last week, I can't remember. But then then we plan to pick up with 1 Kings. Uh, we had finished 2 Samuel about a year ago. So we'll be picking up around the beginning of the year with 1 Kings to pick up with David's death. Um, so that's the plan for the evening services uh, with, with continuing, for now, uh, the fourth and fifth Sundays over at Covenant Church, having uh, our brothers preach to us, and, and that's been a great blessing to me. Um, so tonight we come uh, to one last Lord's Supper sermon for the year, and uh, we want to focus tonight on, here's the sacrament that is about, as we looked at a month ago, the sacraments are about what God has done not what we do. They're about what God has done, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and yet we do have to assess how do we approach and what is it that we're doing or what is happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of our God. Now, in giving you these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry, but another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. The word of our God. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you uh, for shedding light on this important issue for us, that we approach In a worthy manner, we pray that we would do so tonight, even as we come to celebrate this meal with you and with each other. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I knew I had a sermon somewhere in my Bible. Here it is. Well, last week, last month, as I already said, we focused on the sacraments. The sacraments are primarily about what God has done for us and not what we choose to do or decide to do for God. And yet here in 1 Corinthians 11, it's clear that the manner of our coming to the table testifies about what we believe God has done. The, the way that we come to fellowship and to enjoy this meal tonight will say something about what we believe God has done, how we understand the gospel itself. In this text, we're actually told that the very act of participating in the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Christ's, Christ's death, and we'll see his coming. Uh, Christ's death until he comes again. It's a powerful word used there in verse 26. Because it's a word primarily in the New Testament used of what the preacher does—that we preach Christ's death till He comes—and that's led some in church history to to say, "Well, then you uh, you have to have a communion sermon before celebrating communion, right?" The preacher preaches about communion. What what I've done some times this year. Uh, but that's not, of course, what the text is directly saying, as, as biblical as I hope that is, since that's what I'm doing tonight, preaching about the Lord's Supper. But, but that's not what the text is saying. It's actually saying that us taking the Lord's Supper is a sermon about Christ's death and resurrection. What we are doing preaches. What we are doing proclaims something. This is, as the, the church through the centuries has understood it, the visible word. Calvin liked talking about it that way. You have the preaching of the word, you hear it, and you have the visible word. And you think of, I, I think I just heard some John Bunyan being referenced over there a few minutes ago. And, you know, John Bunyan in, in uh, the the Holy War has uh, this, this uh, idea that the human soul has different gates, and one of them is the ear gate, and one of them is the eye gate, and these are the ways that Satan tries to attack us, and, and enter in, and, and uh, take our souls, and, and destroy us. But of course, in, in the book The Holy War, the idea is that having made mankind fall. The city is now uh, occupied by Satan. What does God do? Well, the king, the real king, uses those same gates to reenter the city. And so uh, primarily in scripture, we have the ear gate focused on there. Through the preaching of the word, we come to salvation. We come to Christ. But we've also understood through the centuries that the sacraments are also means of God's grace for salvation in a less direct way than a sermon, but nonetheless a, a glorious thing. So when we think of the, the visible word, we have the red word here, and I'm giving you the preached word tonight, and then we're going to enjoy the, the visible word. Well, to whom are we proclaiming then, or preaching Christ's death, as later we hold these elements and partake of them together. To whom are we proclaiming? I think Paul directs us to three, three groups of people. Two of them are more implied. One of them is very direct. Uh, to whom we proclaim Christ's death as we take the Lord's Supper, and in the manner of how we come to the sacrament. First, we're we're proclaiming the Lord's death to ourselves. That's the focus earlier on in the text. The word proclaim isn't found there, but he says we must each examine ourselves. And that's in the singular. So each one of you has a responsibility to examine yourself. Now throughout the history of the church is a, a, a means of helping the people of God understand the importance of what we're doing here and And the the threat of eating judgment on yourself, the church has understood that uh, communion is taken by those who have made a public profession of faith to uh, their elders or a group of gospel proclaiming elders. And that's that's one way in which the church has come along and assisted with this. Calvin says, if you would celebrate the supper aright, you must bear in mind that a profession of faith is required of you. Uh, But you can't stop there. The emphasis of the text here is that you can't stop with having made a profession of faith. You have to, every time you come to the table, examine yourself to see what your faith is in, what it looks like. You have to examine yourself. Are you proclaiming Christ crucified? And what do you mean by that if you say that I am proclaiming Christ crucified? crucified. So we proclaim Christ to ourselves and the true gospel to ourselves as we approach the table when we see Christ crucified. That is Christ offering himself up. The New Testament doesn't have the idea of Christ uh, Christ buried, Christ dead, Christ crucified in the sense of uh, a, just a tragic event. Here we are. We're gonna we're gonna grieve together around this bread and juice this evening because Jesus died. No, well, that's that's not what examining yourself and proclaiming the death of Christ means. It means, according to Scripture, that we are proclaiming and examining ourselves to see who is our high priest. Is he one who offered himself up a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and reconcile us to himself? Is he the one who, as high priest, broke the sacrifice, his own body broken for us, where we should have been crushed beneath the weight of guilt and judgment, but instead it's his body That's broken. Are we gazing at him who died? The priest who offered himself pouring out his own blood where we should have suffered God's wrath and pouring out his own blood and drinking the fullness of God's wrath so that nothing would be left in the cup for us to drink. No more the cup of wrath, but the cup of blessing. What are we ex- what are we thinking as we come to these things are we examining ourselves that we're coming to Christ as he declares himself to be in the gospel and that this Christ who's the high priest who broke himself and poured himself out did so for me When we come to the Lord's table are we saying and he did this for me We proclaim his death rightly when we come to the table proclaiming our passivity. That, that sounds counter counter itself, doesn't it? Coming to the table, proclaiming our passivity. but what we're coming to the table proclaiming is nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. We are proclaiming the emptiness of our hands. We have nothing to to no right, no claim to this table. we're like the son of the enemy of the king who is told to sit down at the king's table with his sons. you can go and see the beauty of that gospel imagery. If you look at 2 Samuel 9 and David saying, where is, the, where is the the relative of my chief enemy, Saul, to whom I can show God's goodness? And that young man sat at the king's table for the rest of his life, with the king's sons for the rest of his life. Are we proclaiming that kind of thing, that, that Christ, that death, and the results of that death as we come to the table to receive what we don't deserve. Now, this is what we're to proclaim. And if you think about uh, Corinth in this chapter, was that what people were proclaiming? Were they examining themselves and proclaiming Christ crucified to themselves as they came to the table? No. No. Paul says when you come together it's not to celebrate the Lord's supper. Well it's clear as we read the passage. They they thought they were celebrating the Lord's supper. And Paul says you you don't even have the right to call it the Lord's supper. For you come together and and you've turned it into some kind of potluck. Everyone bring your own food, but it's not really even a potluck cuz you're not sharing. And one of you is hungry, starving over there in the corner. And one of you has gotten drunk because you have so much. And they called that the Lord's Supper. That, that's not the sign of a church that's examining themselves and proclaiming Christ's death till he comes. If I'm, if I'm the one sitting over there, oh, I'm so stuffed, I couldn't possibly have any more, well, maybe one more glass. And, and others haven't had anything. What are, what are the implicit thoughts of my heart? If I were to really examine myself, wouldn't I be forced to realize that I think God must really love me a lot? I don't know about the rest of you, but God must really love me. I'm on my third glass of wine. What's your problem? Why don't you have any blessings from God at this table? God must really love me. He must really be cursing you because you're impoverished. He must really love me. Well, why wouldn't he love me? I'm so lovable. Just look at me. I'm wonderful. I don't know about you, though. I deserve to be here, right? Those are the kind of things that of necessity... Are in the heart if you're coming to the Lord's table the way that they were coming to the Lord's table. Now, most of them, if they were, if they were true believers and are receiving a, a rebuke from Paul here uh, as those who are backslidden, let's say, that most of them probably wouldn't even have realized that those are the sinful things of their own heart. Why? Because they aren't examining themselves. They come... To the Lord's Supper with no diligence, no preparation, and no prayer. Which is how we ought to approach all of worship. With diligence, preparation, and prayer. And especially the preaching of the word, we're told in the Catechism. With diligence, preparation, and prayer. But I, I think, you know, it wouldn't be bad for us to say, especially the reading and preaching and the participating in the sacraments. With diligence, preparation and prayer so that we might examine ourselves. Are we proclaiming Christ and his death? Or am I disdaining the death of Christ on the cross with my pride and selfishness, my self-centeredness? Is my worship in the end of the day an exaltation of me and what I like? Or is it an exaltation of Christ and what he has done for us? And so, in 1 Corinthians 11, the first first party to whom this proclamation needs to take place is myself. Examine yourself as you come to the table. Are you proclaiming Christ crucified? But then there are, of course, two other recipients of this proclamation. To whom are we proclaiming? I'm going to just squeeze them together, because otherwise they'd be very repetitious points. The two things go hand in hand. We are proclaiming not only to ourselves, but as a group we are proclaiming to each other and to the world. We're proclaiming to each other, those who are fellow citizens, fellow adopted sons and daughters with us we're proclaiming something to each other as we participate and then if there's anyone who is not a believer in the room how we participate in the lord's supper ought to proclaim the lord's death to them as well there's an evangelistic side and there's a covenantal side now as you look at verse 26 uh, it doesn't come out great in the in the english translations there's this real problem with the English language since it stopped being old English. We don't have a different word for you singular versus you plural. So I, I have two options. I can read verse 26 to you out of the King James Version because in in Old English they have thee for singular and thou for plural. Or I can give you uh, my own translation uh, what I'll call the the deep South translation where you also can get the you plural verse 26. If it was the deep South translation would be for as often as all y'all eat this bread and drink this cup, all y'all proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It, it's a, it's a group thing. So we examine ourselves individually But verse 26 is saying, when you all come together, there's this group event happening and you as a group are proclaiming something. You might not even open your mouth to say anything. Just by opening your mouths and participating in a self-examined, godly manner, you're proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. I like how Guy Princess Waters talks about this in a a, a great little book on the Lord's Supper as the covenant meal. It's very readable. It's written for uh, lay Christians. Highly recommend it. Uh, Guy Princess Waters says, The Lord's Supper is a demonstration of the unity of the church. One reason why the unity of the church is so important to Paul in this context is that the observance of the supper itself proclaims the Lord's death till he comes. This proclamation is a corporate proclamation. The covenant community stands as one redeemed people before their Savior and declares to the world that Christ gave his life in order to redeem all kinds of people, even the weak and the despised of the world. For Paul, this horizontal dimension of the supper is not negotiable or dispensable. So so think think of that. It's us coming together, participating, and declaring that Christ died for all types of people. Even you. I I mean, if we were in Corinth, that's maybe how some of us would be thinking. Even you. Right? Right? You you couldn't even bring a a little piece of bread to celebrate this meal. And Paul's, Paul's saying, when you celebrate it rightly, when you proclaim Christ rightly, how is it that anyone's going without? This is a community thing. Christ died for even the weak and the despised. And how can any of you then be in this room and despise the others? Christ died for the weak and the despised of this world. And we are to commune as those who should have God's hatred. But all of us get to celebrate the meal together. So that the most basic application, the most basic way in which we proclaim the Lord's death together... Paul actually gives this to us in verse 33. The most basic application, even if what Paul has said hasn't reached your heart, if you want to be a hypocrite and make it look like you're celebrating the Lord's Supper rightly on the outside, then what would you do? Verse 33, therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Just such a basic thing, right? Wait for one another you're not eating, and someone else is starving. And we could we could think about that Corinth situation a little bit. This very simple command, therefore, wait for one another. Paul, you really think that's going to solve the issue? Well, no, the self-examination is going to solve the issue. If you're really thinking about Christ crucified, that'll solve the issue. Or maybe the fact that in the church we've uh, ...fixed how Corinth was doing it, and we don't do it as a potluck, and the church supplies the food for everyone. That's that's a simple solution. No, it it's thinking of Christ crucified. But when we're doing that, and we wait for one another, what's one very basic thing that would happen? Well, imagine if, um, if we had had eight more people come in tonight, and I didn't fill that many cups... Uh, and uh, I didn't have that many little pieces of, of bread waiting for one another. If we're truly thinking of Christ and what he has done for us, what would happen then if we passed everything out? And, uh, oh, no, there, there, there's nothing left for Katrina. I, I served everyone else. Well, what would the very simple result be? Well, su- surely someone would say, take part of mine right we, we can break this bread breaks pretty easily we can get another out of this there, there's always a little more but see if you've already eaten your bread because it's all about you then katrina doesn't get the lord's supper tonight and well she'd probably get something off of that loaf there that we just use as show bread but uh that's the, that's the most basic thing that Paul's saying, right? Just wait for one another. Such a simple solution. But they had to be told. And they had to be told because they weren't examining themselves. And so they're not proclaiming Christ's death. They're proclaiming something else. We are to proclaim to each other Christ's death. And that takes uh, humility. Humility that takes that realization that I don't deserve this. You might not deserve it either, but I certainly don't deserve it. And we get it together. And to the world, the the evangelistic side of that, we, we think of coming together and celebrating it together and people waiting for one another, people caring for one another, proclaiming Christ's death. And not only that, but that language of proclaiming Christ's death till he comes. That, that tag on, till he comes. That, that shows that what we're proclaiming about the death is not that he just died. Almost every commentary makes that point. Well, the good ones. If we are just proclaiming the Lord's death, Period. Then, then the world might look on and say what a, a grievous event an innocent man died and they're just remembering him around this weird little ceremony it's a memorial supper we're all here to mourn but Paul says the Holy Spirit through Paul says you remember Christ's death till he comes back which means he didn't stay dead We remember his death, but since we're anticipating in the meal itself, his return, the Holy Spirit in the way he phrases that is saying to us here at the table, you remember his death, but you remember everything that flows out of that death, resurrection, ascension, return. Uh, There are certain uh, famous reformed theologians who in their books, uh, will will basically say, whenever I say death in this book, I mean death, resurrection, ascension, and return. But death's just easier to say. Uh, you know, save several pages of printing. Um, th- that's how Paul approached these things. You recall his death together until he comes. He's coming. He's coming. Wait for that. Be ready for that. Be attentive for that. Think of the, uh, the wedding feast. And this ties into the self-examination, I think. But, but also towards the, just the way in which we witness to the world. Think of the wedding feast that this sacrament points us to and how Christ in his graciousness gave us the parable of the wedding feast. And you remember, there's that part that sometimes causes us a little struggle when we're reading it. At the end of Matthew's version, where the master comes in and says to the man, Friend, why aren't you dressed right? And, and we could read the parable and recall that, well, he sent out his servants and pulled in hobos out from the gutter. And now the master's upset that the, the hobos he pulled into the feast don't have a tux on? That's, that doesn't seem quite fair. Or, or we might read that about the garment and say, well, are we then being told we have to provide ourselves with some merit to be accepted at the feast? But of course, that's not what Christ's saying in either instance, is it? What is he saying? Well, in the ancient Near East, when you invited people to a wedding, you would have wedding garments that the guests could use, especially if you were a rich person. And so if you invited some uh, lowlier people who might only have goodwill uh, polo shirt and, and old jeans or something, and you didn't want them to feel embarrassed as your guest, part of hospitality, you provided them with a robe, a garment that would match everyone else, at least... An okay one so that the gap between the, the tuxedos and the wedding gowns and, and the people who had nothing was, was lessened so that everyone was a, a little bit more leveled out. Everyone was on the same level. And, and so you would come in and the servants would offer you, maybe pull you aside into the cloakroom if you were poor and say, friend, well, let's see what we can find for you in here. We, we might have a beautiful dress that's just right for your size. Um, Something like that. So when Christ says, here's this man at the feast, the wedding feast, and he's not wearing the garment. And, And the master comes in and he says, friend, why aren't you wearing the robe? What he's saying is, I've offered you a robe. And you're choosing to sit in your own filthy garments, your filthy rags that you think are okay when I've offered you this this robe, no, there's no place for you here. There's someone who hasn't examined himself and hasn't recalled the death of Christ till he comes. And we're being challenged in the parable, of course, in terms of salvation, not in terms of the Lord's Supper, but Paul is saying we, we better think about salvation when we come to the Lord's Supper or we prove we don't understand it at all. You're here at the Supper because you're dressed in his robes, not your own. And we proclaim to each other, none of us deserves to be here. We proclaim to the world, Christ has died for us. We don't deserve it any more than you do. But he's died for us. And he, he has not stayed dead. He is risen. and He will come again. Our life, we declare to the world as we in in fellowship and love celebrate this sacrament together. We tell the world that our life is not here below. It is with Christ, and our hope is therefore ahead, and not, not now. Matthew Henry writes, "We welcome His." I'm sorry. We declare His death to be our life, the spring of all our comfort and hopes, and we glory in such a declaration. Does that describe how you come to the Lord's Supper? Does that describe how we come together to the Lord's Supper, declaring that His life? That his death is our life. That it is the spring of all of our comfort and hopes. And that we glory together in the life we have only in him. Here at the table before the world and to each other, we praise God's love for sinners. If we aren't praising God's love for sinners, we're not partaking it rightly. Well, I'm sure there are more things that we could say from First Corinthians 11 here. One thing I, I was struggling with this week, uh, since uh, since we we don't all bring our own bread to the Lord's Supper, rightly so. One loaf, one cup, the way it should be. God provides it through the church, but God provides it. Um, But that means we could very easily look down on Corinth about something that we could never have happened because we're not all bringing our own food to to the sacrament. But then it dawned on me when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, which Paul says was not the Lord's Supper, he says some of them were hungry. That means some, some of the members didn't even have a square of bread to spare, to bring to celebrate with everyone else. Not even a little tiny square of bread that would keep up appearances in front of everyone else. I think the implication Paul's making is that means they probably didn't have a crock pot waiting at home. If you, if you don't even have that little bit for the Lord's Supper for yourself, it probably means you're starving at home. Okay. And not only were they being ignored in the Lord's Supper, that means they were being ignored in all of life. I think one of the applications we can make from this is the manner in which we come to the table had better guide and direct the attitude we have going out from the table. That's what we find in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, we have the apostles' uh, first uh, order of worship, so to speak. Acts two forty-two. What did the church do when it met to worship corporately? It continued in the apostles' teaching—that's preaching—in the breaking of the bread—that's the Lord's supper in the koinonia, which was either the tithe, or it was just fellowship in general, and in the prayers. But but then after that, what did the rest of the week look like? Acts 2 tells us. Well, after they'd gotten together for preaching, they went out and what did they do? They all shared the gospel in Jerusalem and everyone heard it. Well, after being together for uh, the koinonia, the, the tithing or the fellowship, on, on Sunday, on the first day of the week, what did the rest of the week look like? Well, they went out and they shared more of their goods above and beyond their tithing. If anyone had a need, it was supplied by someone in the church. They cared for the poor. And what was the result of having the Lord's Supper together on Sunday? Throughout the week, they were in one another's homes eating and breaking bread. See, there's a natural flow. If we're proclaiming Christ rightly at the table, it's going to have a result into life, which should mean that not only do we all equally get this little dinky half of a shot of juice and a little square of bread together here, but that we pay attention because if we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes rightly, we're paying attention to who doesn't have anything To bring to an actual potluck. Those people who don't have the food. At home. Who don't have the clothes at home. In other words. What James says. Is a proper application. To this passage. When James says. Of the hypocrisy of the church. That you say. Go home. Be well. Warm and fed. And the people that you say that to. Don't have coats. And it's the middle of winter and they don't have food. And Paul here is addressing the same issue. When we come to the Lord's table, we all eat at one table. It's symbolic. If any of you is hungry, this isn't going to fill you up. If any of you is hungry and can't supply your own food afterwards, take the loaf home and fill yourself up. But none of us is going to be fed. This is a spiritual sign and seal of Christ's nourishing of us. But if we are eating at this table, celebrating Christ's death and resurrection, and being fed spiritually, then the result should be that as we each go out, we should say, be well, be fed, let me bring you a meal. Be warm, let me give you a coat. Be filled, be cared for. I'm not accusing this congregation or the covenant congregation of not doing that. Uh, I, I can't speak for the covenant church side, so you'll all have to discuss amongst yourselves whether that's being accomplished. But certainly at Christ Church, this is the attitude. Uh, but we could think of other things as well, not only physical needs, we could also think here we take communion. And then what are we how are we treating each other in 20 minutes? Uh, backstabbing each other with gossip? Losing, losing our temper with one another over politics. Uh, how, how are we responding, in other words, not simply in providing food and clothing, but in our fellowship itself? Does the declaration that Christ is coming again and we have a place at his marriage feast affect how the world sees our communion with each other in all of life? What gospel are we proclaiming? Well, beloved, I receive from the Lord that which I also have delivered to you, that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he broke bread as I, ministering in his name, break this bread with you.